Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Mimi Matthews, USA Today award-winning author of historical romances. Mimi's latest novel in her Bells of London series, The Lily of Ludgate Hill, was just named BookBub Best Romance of 2024. Mimi is in conversation with New York Times bestselling author Gail Carriger. Gail writes books that are mostly comedies of manner, mixed with steampunk, urban fantasy, sci-fi, and queer themes. Her latest novel, Dome Six, continues the Tinkered Star Song series. With more than a million books in print, she remains prolific in both fiction and nonfiction genres. Join these two fun and inspirational writers as they discuss the publishing world and how to protect your work, all while breaking apart the intricacies of writing Victorian romance with a twist. You may even hear about singing alien baristas. Inspiration starts now. Hi, Gail. I'm so excited to finally be meeting you virtually in person. Um, it is. I'm a it huge so cool. fan. Oh, this is this is Gail? so. Oh fun. God. Uh, all I was gonna say is like this is the first time anything like this has happened to me, where a fellow author who I've never actually met in person reached out to say I want to talk to you. Um, and yeah, I'm incredibly flattered and super excited. <laughs> oh, I, well, I have been a fan for a long time. I feel like now your memory may differ, but I feel like we met sort of in the heyday of Twitter when it was a really great place, more like a town square place. Yeah, we were both is... sort of in the Victorian community. Lo yes. like our mutual love of the Victorian era is what drew us together. Yes. And I had, I think I got my contract for my nonfiction books first. And so I had a Victorian fashion book coming out, but I read your book, how to marry a werewolf. And I was just like permanent fan after that. It was so, so good. It hit every sweet spot for me. And then after that, I just binged you. And I think I haven't binged an author in a long time, <laughs> but I, I just went straight through. And then you have newer stuff I haven't caught up with because my publisher's working me like a dog. <laughs> like I'm just writing all the time. But uh, so, just so excited to see you and talk with you and share yes. our mutual love of the Victorian era. Yes, that is exactly what drew me to you the same. Again, this was like back in the, I want to say this was a long time ago, like 2012. I joined Twitter. Uh, no, I, I joined Twitter in 2015. So I think it was 2015. Okay. Oh, okay. So Which that makes sense. Feel like. That makes sense because it was like, but did you have a blog that talked about I Victorian did. stuff I before did. that? Um, yeah, because I, I, I was a big blog consumer, and there's a good chance I found your blog first. I still am. I still have like a, a Feedly subscription to different blogs and stuff like that. And I remember getting so excited when either you found me or I found you on Twitter early on, and yes, because. Yes you did all of this nonfiction content about the Victorian era. And I was always yeah. looking for good resources that were reliable and trustworthy that I could recommend to my readers and to anybody else writing in the time period. And you kind of like made yourself known to me as both a reliable, trustworthy source for really fun information, especially about clothing in the time period. And then you were like active and chattery and like really good at social media as well when I when I encountered you on Twitter. And so I was like, yay, somebody who I can talk to and amplify who loves the same things. Um, yeah, this I think we both have an appreciation for the the quirky bits of Victorian history. Yes. And back when I was doing a lot more, you know, blogging, researching, and then I was syndicated at Bus Magazine for a while. And I found that like, if you're, if you're a writer and you're Googling something, say, if that's your first line of research, it's very hard to tell if, um, if it's reliable, you know, you just don't know. It's like, okay, well, where did they get this information? Is it like a telephone game? They read it from someone else who read it and it's not reliable. So yeah. I felt like when I, when I started sharing research articles, I just did a work cited from all the original sources. So you could see this actually came from a Victorian source. And even if that source was a little bit, you know, ex exaggerating things, you know, probably to sell 
magazines or papers, but at least you could see it had some connection to the Victorian era. Yeah, um, I think we both love primary source material and that and that kind of the appeal of like as the Victorians wrote it in a newspaper or in a Baedeckers or whatever is part of the excitement, exactly. even if it's even if it's exaggeration of the time period, it's of the time period. And I, at least, who don't write exactly. historical, exactly. I get to write, I write steampunk, which is, you know, retrofuturism. I get to be a little more loosey-goosey with the facts, but I think I'm enough of an academic by original training to really love, you know, the the juicy nitty-gritty of a primary source and, and the way you present yeah. it in your blog back in those days and particularly you you act like an academic and i and i really like that as you know as a former academic <laughs> so oh, i was like thank yeah. you i think it all stemmed because when i was getting my law degree um i wrote i can't remember what year it was maybe 2l i wrote a paper this really big you know major paper on bleak house in the british court of chancery and got really into looking back at these sources and um when when I signed with an agent, I was nowhere on social media, and she was like, I don't have the same agent anymore. Not because anything really bad, but it's just a different agent. She's like, you need to be on social media. And I had the worst panic attack thinking, I can't bear it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and then I thought, just write about the stuff you love, the stuff exactly. that you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the thing is you put, I back in the day, I think when we were both starting up in this game you put out into the zeitgeist the thing that you're looking for the thing you want to find and you, you try to provide yeah. a thing that fills uh for me that fills us a, a little niche in fandom that is satisfying both for right. me as as a purveyor of information but also for the other me's on the other side of the screen who want to encounter it um and, and for me encountering you was like yay i want this is what i want <laughs> <It's so laughs> like, yeah you do, it's so rare to find somebody who likes the same things and has the sort of the same sensibility. And finding that in your writing gave me all the excitement of um, the history nerd in me. Yes. Uh, plus the romance, plus the sort of the fantasy and, and the adventure, the sense of adventure, like all those things. I don't know why your books have not been made in a movie yet. I'm, I think they need to be a streaming series. I'm me too. <laughs> They're under <laughs> They're like constantly under option, but you know, it's Hollywood. It's it's the usual um, yeah. developmental hell, they call it. You just get stuck and then somebody gets excited about it and tries to get movement. And then I, I'm, I always consider myself extremely fortunate that I'm from Northern California, which means I have a healthy uh, disregard um, attitude, shall we say, about Southern California and LA in particular. I Me too, native Northern California. Yes. Same so way, whenever like, I talk to you. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, exciting. And then you just sort of, uh, yeah. I Yeah, I'm a little bit of a Northern California snob. It's like, we have everything here. Beaches, <laughs> snow, the city, the best city. <laughs> yeah, but it, it definitely makes you, uh, relatively sanguine as an author when you get any kind of Hollywood interest or offer because you're just like, uh-huh, I believe you. <laughs> I, I believe your be... excitement, but I don't exactly I yeah. don't believe anything will happen from it. <laughs> I think that's probably long term a more healthy way to view it. So you're not on an emotional roller coaster of highs and lows. Yes. Because the industry yeah. has so many yeah. highs and lows you know where something almost happens and you're so thrilled and so excited and can't sleep because you're so excited yeah. and then you're let down yeah. <laughs> and if you can just maintain maybe yeah. that's a little bit better mentally for you yes a friend of mine once described a hollywood deal as somebody hands you a fistful of money and a puppy and then turns around <laughs> and walks away and you're and you might be like i'm not really a dog person i don't know what to do with this puppy puppy might be rabid not sure what's going on here but that's what a hollywood deal is a little bit like where you're just like okay <laughs> um fine. uh yeah uh which is not to say i won't be super excited if something does happen it's just that i'm very much a, a realist i actually have a blog post out there which the original title was a, a book option does not a movie make um, and now it's, so, and you can, if you Google Gail Carriger book option, whatever, like this blog post comes up, which basically is just me, it's kind of explaining this to my readers and my fans, which is basically like, yes, there's an option 
please don't get your hopes up because I don't want you yeah, to be disappointed or anything. Um, yeah, and I promise I'll let you know if there's any movement on that option, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I think it would be a spectacular. I mean, I love sort of the adventure vibe of some of the series that are coming out. And if they could just pair that with Victorian with, with your series, I would be so happy. So yeah, I think it would be fun. I mean, the downside is uh, steampunk. And I, for those who are, are unfamiliar, I, I mix steampunk, which is retrofuturism. So it's Victorian set, but it has kind of fantastical futuristic elements with paranormal. So I also have like, uh, shape-shifting creatures and vampires and things like that but it's all in a very how would the Victorians react to this kind of element actually in their society and if you're really a, a huge fan of the Victorian era which I am in terms of its sort of nascent burgeoning quality as like the sort of western parent of of horror science fiction fantasy the gothics kind of sprung during this era and oh, that's right yeah that's commercial genre fiction so I really as a playground for an author i like taking the monsters that kind of started in our zeitgeist mostly from this time period i mean of course they're older and global but um for the for what i'm informed by as an author it's kind of from this era and then pretending that they really existed in that era so there's sort of a circularity for me that i i have a great time with but it's also totally absurd so i just sort of can retro explain all of the absurdities of the victorian era by just having vampires and werewolves in so like why is everybody oh, obsessed <laughs> yeah so why are you obsessed with like you know, cravats, obviously to hide whether you have bite marks or whatever. Why are you? <laughs> it also funny. makes the opposite the case, right? Like you're in an era where everybody has layers of clothing. What if you are a shape-shifting creature that has to take off all of their clothing? Well, like you have to invent rooms in your houses where the werewolves can go in order to change and stuff like that. So it's just, it's just very fun to me. And it's really fun for me to do the research into what was and then try and sort of rewrite it into uh, the cause is actually the presence of like the supernatural or this sort of retro futuristic element. I can't remember why I got onto that, <laughs> but no, no, I think it's fascinating. And you know, it's an interesting how many of these elements you can work so well into the victorian era they had so many rituals and so many rules and this whole burgeoning occult movement also at the same time so there's yes. this spooky vibe and this interest they have in the yes. occult and you know all the writers the the detective novels that were coming out like wilkie collins and then you know as you're getting to turn of the century bram stoker and yeah. jekyll and high <laughs> it's yeah. just like so much it all ties together yeah it's it's just an amazing it's one of the reasons i love the period so much firstly i mean it's a really long period so it's hard even to say yes there's any sensibility if it covers the whole period but um i mostly set my stories in the 1860s i always say because i love that the skirts are the biggest of they're the so cute. yeah they're so huge and again like my mind immediately is like well ladies need to preserve their purity from attack right so you have these very big dresses yes, yes. and the dresses are like a defense um at least the the attacking monster might get caught in your underpinnings yeah, for well, a while, there, right? there, were, there were a lot of sort of cases and always reported humorously of women during the crinoline era with little dogs getting caught <laughs> uh, in the tapes and wires of a crinoline and you know there's like one i remember writing about a while ago um on my blog of two dogs fighting who got tangled in the crinoline yeah it's just like oh my god <laughs> the things well, you don't... have to suffer to be fashionable <laughs> exactly and they don't call it a cage crinoline for nothing right you know you can exactly, really exactly. a usable cage if you if you tried hard enough um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. The, the absurdity of the fashion is one of the things I like the most about the era is because I can just constantly poke fun at it. And I, I like and it is for me good humored fun because I come at this as a recreationist. So I used to love to dress in right. these fashions still do on occasion. Right. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so that's that's part of the pleasure for me. It's how crazy it is. Is it the same for it you? Is. As you is. write mostly historical. I write historical romance, and Romances, so the way that okay. I use the fashion in the story, so in my series that I have for Berkeley, The Bells of London, the first book in the series, The Siren of Sussex, is actually about a, a writing habit tailor. Men made writing, the most fashionable writing habits were made by men, and he's a half Indian tailor, because I'm half Indian, <laughs> and so I was trying to do um, somebody who was experiencing sort of 
some of the similar emotions or feelings or trying to find his place, you know, where he's not one of one thing and not one of the other. And he's sort of this outsider, but he has this amazing talent for designing these really seductive writing habits. Um, and the way that I try to use fashion in the stories is because my books are closed door. So there's not any sex scenes on the page. That's just how they are. Uh, not for any particular reason, just it suits the stories. It suited the beginning stories and now it's sort of my, one of the things I'm known for. But I feel like a lot of the seductiveness and the sensuality comes from the fabrics and the rustle of a skirt and the brush of mm -hmm. a sleeve and removing a glove. So I feel like fashion can be used to convey sometimes really intense, passionate, uh, the intensity of these passionate moments um, and also, you know, a sense of power. Um, I have a new series that, in fact, I was emailing with my agent, just not my agent, well, my agent and my editor just this morning because they're sort of brainstorming a title for it because I'm not good for a title. But I, the series name is The Crinoline Academy, sort of oh, based good. on Miss Havisham in Great Expectations, who wanted to raise Estella to be her vengeance on men. And it's, it's a school of young women orphans and they're raised by a similar Miss Havisham type person. But I based the title on crinolines back then, the way they made women larger, sort of difficult to ignore. People had mm. to get out of their way, literally. Um, mm. When they were walking, they took up space. And that really appealed to me. This is one of my rambling things, sorry. <laughs> no, I like it's, this. It's, this is it's so fun to talk about. Yeah, uh, I mean, that make me, makes me think of, uh, Oh, shoot. It makes me think a little bit of my finishing school series, which isn't the same premise, but it's it's actually kind of based on a, the opposite premise, which is if you are good enough at society during this time period, you can go unnoticed. You can level up to such a height, especially as a female in high society, where you're almost invisible and how powerful that is, how powerful it is to be the one who is ignored, who is in the shadows and who then can but who also can play the social game so well that you can manipulate everybody's right, expectations. Right. So it's fun that we're kind of both exploring these these different different. Oh qualities. yeah, especially yeah with with young women sort of um, discovering their power and using their power uh, yes. in ways within that time period um, in unique in unique ways. That crash was my cats. They're both <laughs> having some sort of gymnastic event on the side. I'm just like side eye. Please don't yeah. knock down my computer. I'm trying to think. I feel like there was a, there was something recently. No, it's gone. Uh, my brain is uh, not awesome these days in terms of remembering all of the things that I have read, being a pretty voracious reader. But I feel like there was a series of, a pro oh, his uh, his Fair Assassin series is it's not set in the same per period. Have you? It's Robin Lefer's, and it's. It's sort of, I think of it as pretty historical romance because she's so good on time period elements, but it has a fantastical element. So I think it, it, it isn't technically historical that romance, but it, it's much earlier. It's like, like um, France, 14 to 1600s, kind of that kind of time period. And um, that series is this idea. They join a kind of nunnery sort of deal, but they're trained to be assassins because they're orphans and, you know, they have this sort of inculcated power. Like the endless appeal of that idea. I attribute it to being a child of a certain era and growing up mm. watching reruns of like Charlie's Angels. <laughs> things like that. It's like, I like this idea. A group yeah. of powerful women who would go yeah. out and you know, and change things. Yeah, change exactly. things. Make for change. other women. Yeah, so I like it too. One, one other thing you and I have in common is that we're both hybrids. So we have yes. books that are traditionally published. So that just means with um, bigger publishers, traditional publishers, and books that are indie published. So we publish them ourselves, yeah. um, which is super fun. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about, uh, is there one you prefer over the other or... This is this is funny because uh, I'm actually writing right now. It probably won't be out when this is out. I'm sorry, everybody. It turns out I write both fiction and nonfiction. One of the reasons I'm hybrid. But it turns out uh, 
nonfiction for me is something I can pick up and put down. And so it often takes longer. I don't like fugue into it. I don't become lost in the story and then have to spit out I'm the whole the thing. I'm the same way, yeah. Yeah. So the nonfiction is kind of like, ba -ba -da -ba -da. so I have been writing and I'm still writing and eventually it will get finished, a book called Going Hybrid, which is explicitly talking to traditionally published authors who are looking to pivot into some or all indie. Uh, because I feel like if you come to indie authorship from the get-go as an indie author, it's a bit different in how you might approach it, in the tactics that you might use. Whereas if you come right. like we did from a traditional background and then you start doing some indie, like your tactics are are going to be different. Um, so, I think, and yeah. I, I, there isn't a book out there for this. And I, I'm definitely one of those people who's like, once I see a problem, I'm responsible for the solution. And <laughs> so I, I am writing it. so useful. I hope so. I mean, not by a ton of people, there aren't, there aren't very many of us, um, but you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get it done eventually and it'll get out there. I think pretty uh, logically like a nonfiction person still to this day, I kind of think in white spaces and bullet points and, and spreadsheets and I'm very organized. So I feel like I'm pretty uh, good person to write this out as an author. <laughs> like it'll be very practical. Break it down, sort of break yeah. it down into steps. People and I enjoy it. thinking about it that way too. Like I like thinking about, I, I love writing fiction, of course, but I also like thinking about the business side and the hybrid side. So yeah, going hybrid. So when did you make the first switch and, and what, I, what, my, what drew you to try, I guess? My journey is sort of a little bit backward because I got my contract for my nonfiction stuff first and right before or it might have even been the same month the first nonfiction book came out, I put out a indie romance. And what had happened with that is my agent had shopped it, but it was closed door. And at the time, back then, there's not really a market for that outside of inspirational romance mm -hmm. or Amish romance. She was like, have you ever thought about writing an Amish romance? No. Uh, <laughs> so didn't really know what to do with it. But by the time, you know, that... September 2017, I think. By the time it rolled around, I had such a big platform, um, or at least it seemed big to me. I, my website got a lot, a ton of hits. I was, you know, syndicated. Um, I had these nonfiction books coming out. And so then I got an offer from a, a mid-sized digital first press. Ah. And I just thought to myself at that time, you know what, if I'm going to go this way, I think I can do it better myself. And I put it out myself, and then I put the next book out, both of them short, within a space of like four months. And then I wrote the matrimonial advertisement, which came out the next year, and it hit the USA Today bestseller list. Wow. And then every book in that series on release hit the USA Today bestseller list. And after that, I thought that going indie with those first books was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. Um, and I didn't keep all the rights. I sold, I, well, my agent sold the audio rights and foreign rights and things like that. So I, but I kept the ebook rights and right now I still have the paperback rights. Mm -hmm. Um, it just made me feel really strongly. Even later when I sold the next series, I wrote, I sold it to Berkeley Penguin Random House that it's really good for authors to be everywhere and have a little bit of knowledge in every industry and I always get apprehensive when I see authors, this is no shade to Kindle Unlimited, um, but when I see authors who are publishing and just putting books in Kindle Unlimited because you're giving your power away mm -hmm. and you're really dependent, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and I feel like you need to just have a little bit of stuff everywhere. So if any one pillar gives, you're yes. not out in the cold. You're, yes. you've, you're okay, you know, you're, because you're everywhere and you've got a little bit everywhere. Yeah, I'm actually putting a deck together. I'm uh, presenting at Superstar Writers next month as we record this. And I'm putting a deck together that's called Failure is Just a Data Point, which is essentially about the idea that if you encounter a big problem in your career, if you have a bunch of systems in place, it's less right. of a big problem, right? If Amazon cancels your account, for um, a certain amount of time and you need to get it back up again. If you're not entirely getting all of your resources off Amazon, then, you know, so what we're talking about is making sure your assets are split as diversely as possible. So again, exactly. like you put it, any one pillar goes down, then, you know, it's okay. You're, you can weather that storm. And I feel like exactly. my career has been a lot of serendipitous advantages, but also a lot of issues and concerns and crises and as, as, 
frankly, everybody's author career. Like you, you lose an editor, you'll lose an agent. In my case, Barnes oh, and Noble, right. you yeah. lose 500 of your books, and then you don't make the New York Times, and everybody's mad at you. You know, like there's just stuff like this across the yeah. board that happens constantly. And a really good mentality to have is, okay, this is a problem now. Like, how am I going to fix it? And how am I going to fix for this problem when it happens again in the future? Because it's pretty inevitable that exactly. it will happen again. And one of the best resiliencies you can have as an author is to be as wide as possible and as diverse as possible. Because it makes you the most agree. resilient, right? It's like they yeah. talk about this with stocks and investments the same way. Like, Don't put and, everything and, in one hot stock. <laughs> precisely. It's made me, at this point in my career, very nimble, which I think after 15 years as an author, a lot of that's authors, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it, we often get stuck in adaptable. Yeah, but it's made me really adaptable, and I've loved it. Frankly, I really enjoyed it. So I brought my so I'm the opposite. Well, I'm different from you in terms of the hybrid side of it. So my first book came out in 2009. And uh, my second book hit the New York Times, and then pretty much all of my subsequent ones for Trad hit the New York Times, which is braggadocious. So. Thank you. But but it, <laughs> what it should actually tell anybody listening to this conversation is that the attitude from publishing changes towards you when you hit the New York Times. It means, you yes, you sell a certain amount, but it also means you have a certain amount of power in terms of contracts and all of these things. It also means you're expected to continue to hit the New York Times. And if for some reason you don't, it's probably your or the book's fault. It's never marketing's fault. It's never it's never the New York Times' yeah. fault. It's usually the author's fault. We get all the credit, thank you. But we also get all of the, <laughs> the blame. The blame for the, the next one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I was hitting up against certain frustrations. I'm a I'm a bit of a control freak. And I was, and you know, I would do something. I'd be like, well, I wrote this short story. And my publisher would be like, well, we don't really do short stories, but we'll take it. And just, and I was like, no, you can't, you can have it for free. My job, like, no, you have to pay yeah. me for, sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, you know, so there'd be stuff like that. And I'll just be like, well, if you don't want it, I'm going to do something with it. Um, or if you or if you're not going to pay me for it, I'm going to do something with it. Um, and also, I've always been like sort of very extroverted and outgoing for an author. So I'm really actively involved with my fan base. I talk to them all the time. Um, Orbit, my traditional publisher, who's Hachette, figured this out pretty early on and would send me on these massive book tours where I would get to meet everybody in person. And I would be like, this is even better. <laughs> you know, now I'm making friends with everybody. Um, so I have a pretty good, loyal fan base. I'm also pretty consistent in what I write and my style of writing. Even as I move from historical to contemporary or to future, I, I also write uh, paranormal romance and I also write science fiction. And so because my voice tends to carry between as a writer, it tends to be kind of casual and fun and amusing. I have sort you of take your fans numbers. with you from book to book. Yeah, they, they will follow me or at least a third to two thirds will follow me <laughs> between different books. Um, I also love data. So I, I kind of track everything. All of which is to say I felt like I had the kind of personality that was like game. I also had the kind of yeah. consistency um, in terms of what tr Trad was giving me and what I could produce to know I had a reliable income stream and I could be ex experimental. Um, and also yeah. I had a lot of friends in self-publishing at the time. Um, so I've had a, I had a lot of friends in podcasting and a lot of them were the very early self-publishers in like, two, we're talking 2006, 2007. So I kind of kept- I think they an call that like the golden era. <laughs> The golden era, yeah. I kept an eye on what that side of the industry was doing, even when the mainstay of the industry was being very dismissive of self-publishing. Um, yeah. And so, you know, things changed. I'm, I'm very good on my contracts, too. I had a, a serendipitous thing, which was I had left one contract because the option clause was too broad. And so my new publishing house knew that I would walk away um, if, if the contract terms, like I actually didn't want it as badly as everybody else. And that's because at the time I was a full-time academic and happy to stay that way. Writing was a hobby and I never thought I would make money at it. So I was definitely willing to leave a bad contract. And knowing that they cut me a really good 
option deal, which basically was a very tight option clause, which essentially means um, they only really had the rights to novel-length stuff written under the name Gail Carragher historically set fantasy, which meant that anything outside of those bounds, I could do whatever I wanted to with it. So, so if it's novella length, I can do whatever I want, or short story, I can do whatever I want. If I, I don't have to ever offer it to my publisher. Um, and if I write- The interesting my, thing- Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say that I had a similar experience and how important it is to not, for new authors coming up, to not be so excited that a big publisher has signed you that you give all of your rights away. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're sort of, you know, strangle held, like you can't put out any books of your own this many months before, this many months after the release, yeah. which effectively means never. The non-compete clause, um, yeah. Yeah. The non-compete clause, yeah. And then when I did sign a contract, which was for young adults, um, I signed with a different house. It was under the same umbrella company, but it was with the, with the, with a different house and they had to work together to balance my schedule and my turn in and stuff. And they were motivated because they were under the same umbrella company, but it meant that I could be like, yes, but you've done this for four before for me like you've relaxed your standards before in terms of when i can produce a book also there was a lot of me uh later on especially as i became more and more active as hybrid um explaining their business to them and being like no you don't understand like to this day my first series continually collects royalties and almost always my royalty report will come in and they'll be like we don't understand why gail is still selling which is code for them admitting to the fact that they don't they don't advertise me or market me anymore and and i'm always like do you think it's because i'm still writing in the universe like books uplift each other the, 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 yeah. the idea that there's yeah. competition is ridiculous you just build on the momentum of a exactly. previous book exactly. or whatever because when people find you sometimes from a new book and if they exactly. love your voice and they love your storytelling, they'll read your whole, they'll binge your whole backlist. That's what you um, did. You, How to Marry a Werewolf, I think is like my 14th book or something. I like know, that. I know. Yeah. Do you know, I don't know, it's so strange that I didn't start with Soulless. And I think it was just because I'm always so swamped. And so the novella link really appealed to me. Just, I went through a period where reading things that were, you know, 40 to 60 or even lower, you know, long enough that you really got the feels of a story, but short enough that you could, finish it pretty quick and not have to feel like you were shirking your day job. Yes. My favorite, it's my favorite length as well. I also like standalone yeah. in that length, which is one of the reasons most of my know. early indie stuff is shorter and it's a romance so that I can have one full story encapsulated. But it is from a purely hybrid perspective, it's also an onboarding tactic for the world. If somebody really does like it, I reuse side characters and you know other characters all the time you know yeah. that there's an entire cast of of your favorite characters wandering oh, around having other stories yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And so it, it's constantly it's really great yeah and honestly that's i like the, the little shorties so much that i heard somebody talk about what, what did they call them not duologies but just writing a two book series because <laughs> i was I complaining about finding series to be sometimes hard when you get to so my book that just released on tuesday the lily of ledgate hill is book three and there's one more book after that and it's always for me sort of meshing it all together because a lot of times when i finish a book i'm sort of done with the people in the book yeah i feel like if you're if you have a visitation by the characters and you're able to speak with their voice when the book is over those characters leave me and so all the, yeah. all the sequels are like having to do a resurrection of these characters that I long ago said goodbye to. And I'm not, I, I think I can, I can do it, but it's not easy. It's no, and it's not I, always fun. I like to have them reappear as sides because then I get to write them from someone else's perspective, which yes. is really fun. Yes, I like that too. Yeah. But I, I always say like, you know, after a, when I'm writing a bigger series, which are novel, like the Soulless series or the Finishing School series or the Custard Protocol series, which are novel length books. And I'm relatively short as a novelist. I'm, I'm usually 90 to 110. I very, I've never gone over that. Um, but you know that's still a lot of words right you know we're talking 400 to 500 out the, out the other end i'm like i'm done with those characters and frankly they're done with me interfering in their lives that's, they would love to go all. off and yeah. do their own thing <laughs> that's usually do you ever finish a book and you have almost 
after you send it off, I always say it's almost like postpartum depression. You've been working on this for quite a while. You send it off and you have a moment of relief like I've finished it. I can send this off. It's off my plate. And then you have this empty sort of yes, very... <laughs> very sad loss feeling it happens for readers too um some people call it like book lethargy i've all always yeah like a book withdrawal syndrome it's it's this idea from a reader perspective it's this idea that i love this book so much but i never get to read it again from the perspective of not having read it like i will right. i'm a rereader so i will get to reread it again yeah. but i'm never going to have the same experience that i did the first time it, it transported yeah. me and i think as that writers we get that too we get this idea yeah. that like I got to dwell with these characters for so long and I love them so much. And now we're done. Uh, like you, I'm like, there's always the possibility I could revisit, but it seems pretty unlikely. Um, and then you get the like, oh, I'm done. And then there's the euphoria of it. I mean, I get I get people ask me all the time, what's your favorite book? And my, my answer is always the one that I just finished publishing because <laughs> my goodness, in. it's such a relief to have it out there in the world. <laughs> no. When I, I've sort of got a little bit of the writer postpartum depression going after Lily's release because there's the excitement of release day. And then, you know, in the lead up, you have so many different exciting moments when the trade reviews come out or when, you know, you have all these assignments, interviews, things like that, that you have to get done. And there's this immense feeling of, of buildup and the readers are so excited. And it's funny because sometimes, you know, you'll hear from readers who the day it released, they're like, I finished it and loved it. When's the next one? Uh, when's oh my the next God. One? And, and uh, which is great. I love that they love it. And I do the same yeah. thing with books I love totally. Like I'll yeah. just inhale it. But, but also it's, you're yeah. like, I'm so tired. <laughs> so tired. It's so true. You're also just like, look, could I just, could I just get a break for a bit? Yeah. <laughs> like at this juncture, yeah. I'm always like, have you read one of the 36 others? Because I oh bet you gosh. haven't read you have them a, all. <laughs> you have a much more impressive backlist than me. I think I have and this might include the nonfiction 16. And I only know because somebody mentioned it, but I met somebody I was at, because of my neck injury, I have to go to physical therapy and see this doctor. And he was telling the receptionist, receptionist, she writes books and blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, how many have you written? And I didn't know the answer. And I think she thought, <laughs> you don't write, <laughs> write books. Any author would know the number if you had actually written books. I thought, no, it is all a blur. Some are like waiting to get edited. Some are out yeah. there some are also, do you, it's very hard to also being hybrid what do you count like it from a publication standpoint it takes just as much energy to bring out a short story but like yeah. that doesn't really count as a book are we talking as a book book right book book word count physical print editions exactly. you know, like i have i have a sort of a compilation piece that's for my newsletter only but it's book length i was like you can buy it from me i published it i count that as a book but it's not like a story from start to i count finish. them all as books i but i yeah. a substantial amount of mine are I have quite a few novellas, just like really right up to the 40,000 yeah. word yeah. length, which is funny sometimes because I do hear from readers who are like, um, this novella was too short, but 40,000 words is the actual novella. If it's any longer, yeah. it would be a novel. Yeah, it depends on the industry, right? Like yeah. I feel like romance will call a novella anything from 20 to 40 or even, but you know, sci-fi yeah. and fantasy have different standards that sort of a thing it's so hard so. to tell i feel like as long as you do service to the story yeah i mean each story requires sort of something different yeah but, although um, i have to say if i'm going to go for 40 i usually just go all the way to 50 because if you do 50 amazon calls it a full novel and also oh, you can get they? a, Ooh, get a book pub. <laughs> yeah yeah you can get a book pub ad as well um book pub oh, won't right. do novellas, like, but they will they will yeah. do quote unquote novels and i was like all right let's just add in a second thread or a side character or something that that beefs it all the way up yeah i you know what i find more and i don't know if this is the lawyer in me who you know how they say a hundred page a document and call it a brief <laughs> yeah um that mine always tend to go over rather than be too short and I'm like okay well this is much shorter than I thought I always think when I start how am I gonna 
get this the length that needs to be. That is never the problem by the end. It's always, <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm an underwriter. Uh, I'm an underwriter in the non-legal sense of the word, which is to say I tend to fall short of the word count. Um, and that's because I because I write comedy and comedy is so hard though. And comedy also comes in descriptions and action sequences and stuff like that. So I'll almost right. like, I'll often write the story kind of what I call bare bones and then go back and fill in extra funny bits and descriptions, or I'll leave TKs right. for myself that are like, you have to research this right as a historical author. And then I've I'll just started do doing yeah. that to So I don't get um, stuck sort of in the, mud of drafting or distracted distracted by research for too long right yeah. like the next thing you know you know trying to find out you know what size towel somebody used in 1853 exactly and you're and like actually I might have asked, yeah. yeah 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 that's that's yeah. that's what i do like pretty much anything to convince myself to push all the way through and type those magical the end words at the end um so what i found is my my true comfort length is like 80k and, and and i think that's just i i'm comfortably in a, a ya novelist basically because that's kind of ya length um and that's just pacing wise i worry about pacing constantly because i do write Me comedies too. and manners Me too. so yeah it, so i'm like i gotta make sure my pacing is on point so i try to i try to write bare bones now but i think i think this is not all that I mean, maybe I hang out with too many fantasy and sci-fi authors, but they always seem to be overwriters. Like they're always complaining that they wrote 200 when it was a 150. I was like, and now they have to know why mine go. Out. Why mine go over? Maybe the characters have too many thoughts, mm. or maybe they, <laughs> maybe there's a lot of there's always a lot of angst and yearning in my books, and I feel like it's sort of expressed in various ways, and sometimes that takes up a lot of bandwidth. And also, I'm really. Um, I don't know, but I, I aspire to write shorter and to write, you know, sort of a more compact story. Um, Are you an outliner or a... Oh, no, or you know what? I, I wish that I could be because when the stress and the pressure is on and, you know, you don't have sort of your muse whispering in your ear as you're writing and you just have to sort of pull it up out of the ether and you don't have an outline, being a pantser is scary. Hard. Yeah, um, it's yeah, a great because note, you, the void. Yeah, you're going somewhere, and so so for my my one that I'm working on now for for Berkeley, I had to do um, sort of it's not an outline, but sort of a couple page you know summary. It's like a synopsis of what's going to happen. So that's the closest to an outline I've got, and I'm like, okay, I know <laughs> I know what these I have an idea what I'm doing. Do. This is what I promised they would do, yeah. um, but I like discovering as I as I write, some things will happen, some character emerges or something. Um, and so I'm more like intuitive in that way, but it probably is going to make me have a heart attack by the time I'm 50 because <laughs> <laughs> the stress is intense. Um, the worry and stress, but yeah. Do you, do you prefer outlining? I'm an outliner by nature. Yeah. Um, it used to be much stricter when I was a little bit less confident. Now I feel like I don't know, you know, like I said, over 30 bucks, like you, not entirely sure how many, but it's somewhere around over 30. And then when I hit 40, yeah. I'll be able to say it's over 40. You know, like that's kind of how I, I work at this juncture. <laughs> um, but but it, it, it's in my bones, like my pattern of narration in terms of like the the way I lay out the scope of a book is it's kind of, I think I, I loosely follow five act structure and I think it's because I come out of five point essay writing. Like it's just where also because I almost always write with, sometimes they're romances, but mostly I write science fiction, fantasy, YA, whatever uh, genre it is with a romance thread. And I use the romance thread for the two points. So you know when you're thinking in terms of the visual of a five pointer, I'm thinking in terms of when you're laying out action or denouements or reveals right. or whatever. I tend to use romance for two of those and then you know action and, and other kinds of plot for the other three. And so I think I fall into five. I've never really analyzed my own work, but I do think it, I'm, I'm naturally a pretty strict outliner. Um, as I've written more books, I need an outline less because it's just there in my brain pouring it's out of sort me. Of engraved into your soul. 
Yeah, but I like it. I like an outline. I'm a visual writer. I like Scrivener because I can kind of lay everything out and sort of see everything. But I also, I'm the opposite. I don't like discovery. <laughs> like, um, oh. I'm, yeah, I like, I, I always joke, I can't go for a walk without a reason. Like, I don't want to go, and getting exercise is not a good enough reason. I need to go get tea or I need to go see the opening hour of that restaurant (laughs) I'm checking out, right? Like I can't go for a bike ride unless I'm picking up milk. You know, like I need to know as a reader, I'm one of those terrible people who will pick up a book and read the last page. Um, Ah, I know I will go out (laughs) looking for spoilers of movies. Uh, I like knowing what I'm in for both as a writer and a consumer. Um, And so that, that makes me pretty well set up to outline like you, I've learned to give myself wiggle room in terms of like, I know what I need to do for the next chapter or scene, but characters are allowed to come in and, you know, other things are allowed to happen. Um, and, you right. know, sometimes that's because I have sort of characters that are instruments of my subconscious and they have like information that needs to be conveyed. I was like, oh, the vampire Lord Aquadama is coming in. That means <laughs> something important has got to be relayed in the most ridiculous way possible. But um, do you feel like do you feel like outlining um, when you've got your outline set up, if you're having a blah day, an uninspired day and you don't really feel like writing, will an outline keep you on track and sort of get you through it in a workmanlike manner, even if inspiration's lagging? Yeah. And, And while I'm sort of naturally a linear writer, it means I don't have to be. So if I'm having a blah day and I'm like, well, that's because I have an action scene and I just don't really want to write that, I can skip forward and write the sex scene because I know the sex scene is going to happen if the sex scene is what I feel like writing or what have you. So it does do like give my muse, it. it gives my muse wiggle room as you know, in a kind of discovery writer way, weirdly, it allows me to, to mood into what I want to write. Um, also, so you can hop between is, the scenes. This is also where a hybrid author is really, really useful because um, because it used to be I would like skip ahead and write a sex scene and I'd be like, yeah, but I might have to cut this out. And like, the, you know, like my publisher might not want it to go that high heat or, you know, my publisher yeah. might want to market it as YA instead of new adult or whatever. So, you know, I might write 10,000 words of like a great sex scene or a fantastic like detour into a different part of the universe or meeting of a different supernatural creature and then I'll end up having to cut it and you know I'm not a super fast writer so I'd also be like well darn it I might have to cut all of this out but now I'm a hybrid author so I'm like there's so much stuff I can do with that piece of content that even if I feel like cutting it out it's going to be immeasurably valuable to my career now I can do a deleted scene blog post I can I can use it to onboard people to my newsletter all there's so much stuff I can do with it um, so being this style of writer has also helped me in that arena as well, where I'm, it I'm also way more relaxed about letting myself. Yeah, it gives you enormous flexibility. Mm-hmm. Do you feel too, it's not, um, being hybrid, you don't have that feeling of all or nothing, um, yeah. you know, because you're not really afraid because you have these other structures in place. Exactly. Um, I mean, I on spec'd my rose, my most recent series, which is a sci-fi series, which I think is probably the best thing I've ever written. But it is YA, it is sci-fi, and it is a space opera. And anybody who pays attention to what's going on in the commercial world in, in New York publishing knows that those are all big, big red flags. Like, not a genre oh. that sells enough, really, unfortunately. Like, not a high-performing genre. Um, and so... But I was also, I also think this series would make a really great um, animation piece. So I was like, let's, let's just go for trad first. Like, I've written them. Let's give it a year. While you, to my agent, I was like, my agent was like, I don't think so. I was like, give it a try, agent. Let's just see. Um, (laughs) And so uh, while she was shopping them, I was tinkering with them and I got my own dev edit on the first one and I'm like working along and doing it. And, you know, because I know, even if she can't sell it, that I can, that I can turn around and do these myself, um, which is in fact, either way. Exactly, exactly. And that is, again, from a like, just a business perspective in knowing where your income streams are going to come from and things like that. It's just such a relief to know you have that platform in place and those resources. And then you don't ever have to. Yeah, you don't have to ever be panicked thinking to yourself, oh, um, 
I got dropped by my agent. I got dropped by my, my publisher. Um, exactly. Amazon, like you said, canceled my account or they yep. changed the pay structure for something like Kindle Unlimited. I or saw, the um, exactly. Yeah. These sales are down. Those sales are down because you've got things sort of everywhere. And even if it means, um, maybe in the short term, in some respects, when you're starting out, you know, it might mean you're not getting as much money because mm. you're not, um, I don't know. I don't know this from experience. I cycled my two oldest books into Kindle Unlimited at one point as sort of feeder books when they were very, when they were very old. Um, but I saw two authors talking once, of course, I can't remember who it was saying, if we had put our indie series in Kindle Unlimited, we could have made like 600,000 more dollars than what we made. But this is why we chose not to go that route. And I thought that was very interesting, but, um, so I think, you know, it might be easy to think I'll start and put my books here if you're an indie, but I don't think long-term it's really the yeah. best thing. You're looking at a long-term career. Yeah, that's that's part of it is, is I'm a big fan of the business concept of SMART goals. And I'm like, just think seriously about the the thing you have written as an asset and what you want to do with it and whether your choices are smart in the long run or not. Now, but it, I mean, if you have a day job you love and you're and you want to be a, a hobbyist writer, do whatever you like. Oh, like absolutely. My, there are no rules. <laughs> there are no rules, right? My perspective, and if you come to me for advice, which you know I'm fortunate enough to get people doing now, I'm gonna talk to you about somebody who makes their whole income and living off of her fiction. And I have other income streams. I have a nonfiction stream now. I have speaking. I have other things I do, which does bring me an income. But 75% of my income is from my fiction sales. And so my perspective is how do I keep that robust and consistent? And how do I do the things for myself and my career that Trad historically does not do? So, you know, Trad for all of its benefits in terms of exposure and for all the great things that they've done for me over my career, they aren't invested in my career as a long term. They aren't interested in keeping my backlist alive, for example. And it's been over 10 years for me. I am interested in keeping my backlist alive yeah. and making sure I get new readers to old series and things like that. And as a hybrid author, I can absolutely do that. I, even though those books are often locked into traditional co contracts, I can reuse a character from one of those books and then people will want to know about that character's backstory, right? And then go read the older stuff. So I still have the means at my disposal to, to sort of keep the dream alive, right? And to keep my yeah. back robust and healthy. I can experiment on my older indie books with new cover art, for example. Um, it, it I allows it to be, yeah. yeah, very versatile. And like you said earlier, very nimble. You can adapt to change. You mm -hmm. can try new things, even if you, if you fail, you know, you, you know, you can assess whether the risk is worth it to try different things. And I think it just allows you to explore new spaces and to, in that way, I think indie is really great um, because it allows you to do all these things. Also, just in terms of the kind of fiction you find there is, I think initially it allowed yeah. for different stories, different voices, yes. more diversity, things that weren't fitting, you know, a particular niche in traditional publishing could really flourish in indie because there's people looking for those stories. Yeah. And, um, you know, it may not be enough people to make a living if you're an author at first, <laughs> but people are hungry for these stories that speak to them and not everything in the traditional mold is filling that, that need. And, and the good indies have really filled that gap, I, I feel. Totally true. I mean, and this is, again, it's a total matter, matter of perspective, right? Like a trad business model, they have to make enough money off of the book. Right? So that book has to have a certain amount of broad appeal for it yeah. to be considered a success by them. If you're, if you're just indie, you don't like, you need your 10,000 true fans, right? You don't, a traditional publisher needs 100,000 people to read that book to make right, back their Right, comment, yeah, because right? there's a lot of people involved in getting that book to market, and so they yeah. need to move a lot of books. Yeah, they're, um, they're an industry. A lot of people, they, they need to make money off of your asset. That's that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do is make money, right? Um, it, it's frustrating when they don't do that in the way that I want them to. <laughs> but yeah, that, yeah. that's another reason to be indie is that I, get, I can get 
very experimental. So I do have like dependable royalties coming in from my traditional book series is. So with my indie stuff, I can be like, well, I'm really mad at Amazon. So I will take everything out of, you know, Audible or something like that and just yeah. see about doing it this way for a while. And, you know, and I can, I can take that hit and, and see what happens. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's not good. But also, I mean, I'm, oh, I get so excited about this kind of thing. But also when somebody <laughs> comes to me and says, well, I believe that you need to put a newsletter link in your back matter. And then someone else comes to me and says, well, I believe you need to put a newsletter link in your front matter. I can be I like, well, I got 20 books. For 10 of them, I'll do them one way. For 10 of them, I'll do it the other way. Oh, and I'll track that. my six conversion. And I'll, I'll answer this question for you. Like, let's see which one's better. Turns out they're the same, pretty much. It's the same. <laughs> um, to anybody who controls their front and back matter, put your newsletter call to action both places. Put it in the front of your book and put it in the back of your book. Nobody's going to mind. I didn't have, didn't have any of that. I didn't... Um... I, I would say I didn't, I didn't benefit, I, I didn't benefit by not knowing a ton of people because since I didn't come from any sort of writing groups or online communities of writers and things like that, it was sort of just me and I writing my history stuff and I just sort of taught myself and learned myself. And then it's sort of like over time realized, okay, this is, you know, this was good, but you should actually have this or you should actually have that. This needs to be. And and that's another good thing about your indie books is you can constantly be changing and updating them in a yes. way, you know, like you can put your newest books in there and the, you yep. know, also buy titles. You can, you know, link to your Facebook group or your newsletter or your wherever else you are. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, like it's it, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's a, an additional thing, you know, which is an added bonus if you're computer savvy or tech savvy in at least that way. And if you're not, as long as you're game to be trying stuff, you will become tech savvy pretty quickly. <laughs> working oh, on you'll all get your own friends, books. right? Like you make author friends, you do. I mean, I have the advantage of having come from a really active like book touring and convention going early part of my career. But most of my author friends, at least originally, were trad, right? And they have a yeah, very different yeah. perspective. And you know, and their attitude towards me is, oh, Gail is going crazy and doing her wild indie whatever. <laughs> um, but I mean, I am very well aware of the fact from having so many author friends now also in the self-publishing and a few in the hybrid community um, that my obsession with data and data tracking is actually pretty unusual. Um, and that for me, but it's excellent, happen, but, but it is excellent. Fun. I mean, and I, but I have the base and the asset, like the diversity of assets in the background that I can play with this. And I will tell people about it. I'll be like, I feel like doing a like survey and poll to my fan base about where they're finding books. I like, I want a discoverability poll or whatever, you know, and yeah. I'll get 2000 people participating, which is pretty good statistically, num you know, high number. Admittedly, it's my fan base. So, you know, it's skewed in that regard, but you know, I'll just collect data for a while and be like, okay, this is what I found. You know, this kind of thing is just deeply exciting to me. Um, I and I do it I do because it. you can numbers you can work with. I mean, you could see the visible results you can compare. Yeah. It's different than just a feeling or a vibe or a ranking, yeah. which I mean, a, a good ranking is great, you know, on various vendors, but it's like not really anything you can hang your hat on. I mean, and the data is obfuscate, ob obfuscated, right? Like speaking specifically of something like an Amazon ranking in a category that's dependent on the category that you're in. Exactly. You're competing like how niche is this category? A subset of a subset of a subset? Exactly. Also, <laughs> Amazon weights, weights within, as in weight, W-E-I, like they value add to things that are in KU. So they'll go higher up in the category than right. I think that I, kind of I thing. Said, I said something about that once a while ago um, to somebody online, because um, I think people were feeling bad not getting the, the orange bestseller tags or whatever. It's like, well, you know, your trad book is being, that's $12.99 or $14.99 is being skewed against a Kindle Unlimited book that's 99 cents. So yeah. the fact that you didn't get that tag is is not indicative of anything Much. bad yeah. about your book at all. Yeah. It's comparing 
apples to, I mean, I don't know what, potatoes. They're, yeah. You can't really compare these two. They're different products. I mean, an, an example of this, and this is like deep, weedy stuff, but this is the kind of thing I love because it proved my data, my datum, which is uh, am, you have Amazon followers, right? Um, and then yeah, you can also yeah. you can also get followers in other venues like Goodreads or BookBub or whatever. Right. For the very longest time, BookBub would tell you how many followers you have, but Amazon never would. So my little data dork would like go in and track everything. And so I would do things like stage tracking for pre-orders and stuff like that. And so I would so Amazon sends out a follower alert to right. everybody saying when you have a pre-order, right? BookBub will also send out a follower alert saying when you have a pre-order. And so BookBub would go out and I would be like, okay, I get X number of sales. Oh, and I know and you would I compare the two. Oh, that's exactly the same thing. I never even thought to do that. Yeah. So it's just a very simple ratio. The math is really simple. And basically just from that, I was like, okay, I'm assuming I have about 20,000 followers on Amazon. on Amazon. And so recently, a couple of like, I think maybe a year, year and a half ago, Amazon finally released follower numbers and I have 20,000 followers on Amazon. So and I was like, data was correct. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I love it when that happens. Um, yeah, I was deeply, deeply. It's like such a silly little thing that only I would know no, about. No, I love that. It's just like, hey, math is useful. It's math really is useful. And, yeah. It was not my favorite fair. subject in school, but heck of useful in every facet of life. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I'm like, but more importantly, this allows me to put systems in place that tell me things like if Amazon doesn't send out that follower email, to my, I know exactly how many sales I'm gonna lose from that, right? If they decide to remove that feature, which they could at any time because they're Amazon, I know yeah, how many know. sales and therefore how much money my bottom line is gonna be impacted, right? So it, it just, it's just predictive. I, I like anything that, it's a very like at the whims of fate career being an author being self-employed like we are like we are already at the mercy of our creative muses we're at the if you're right. mostly trad you're at the mercy of your of your traditional publisher at, at of your agent at all of these things um i want to have as much predictive power and control as possible over knowing like if i write this thing about how many sales will I get from it, about how many reviews are gonna happen. Um, if I write in a different genre. Yeah, that you don't yeah. feel like, you know, that you're just sort of releasing a book into an unknown sort of abyss, that you have some idea of what's gonna be coming back from it. And Precisely. where that's coming, and where those readers are coming from, what's funneling them to your book. And also if yeah. I wanna challenge myself to get new readers with a new series or to try and beat what I think I can get, I know what that is, right? Like like I know, we always talk as, as authors that you're, you're very rarely in competition with anybody else as an author because no one else writes the same way you, you may share- It's mostly I find competition with yourself. That's exactly I compare it. my books to my other books more than, it's when I see the data exactly. on indie books, I'm like, okay, well this one, didn't do as well as that one of mine. Exactly, because and I wanna know how I win against myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is, you think, okay, well, what was the difference? Was it in the story? Was it in how I marketed it? Was it in the, you know, what element here was the weak link that yeah. I can change? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But was it Facebook great. zero? Was it Twitter X? Like what, what like social yeah. media zeitgeist changed has an impact or doesn't? A Twitter is another great example. I knew, and I've known for years, because I always track my launches. For anybody out there, um, your launch and pre-order data is the only data, sales day-by-day -day data that you can really have access to via Amazon. So it's one of our most effective tools is the pre-order. And so I'm, I always track all of this. And I knew from tracking from click to conversion, so not just clicks, but click to conversion, that Twitter is a terrible sell place. It's full of looky-loos. A lot of people on Twitter, I would talk about a new book coming out, would go and look at it. Very few of them would buy it. It's, it's never been an effective, which tells oh, me that most of the people I'm interacting with and chatting with on Twitter are probably other authors or non-fans. Right. My fans are probably getting information about my new release from somewhere else than Twitter. That's what it was telling me. And so and this was years before Twitter 
went but so when twitter went (laughs) when twitter started to fail basically at for us as authors i was extremely sanguine about it because i was like yeah i don't actually get a lot of sales off of twitter and so other authors would come to me panicking and i would be like well, how much do you sell on Twitter? Like, is it really going to impact your bottom line? I I think I agree because I feel like I do share at this point, I'm not as active on social media, just chatting about things I love. And mostly because since, um, for the last year, things have just been so stressful. I'm lucky to post the things I'm supposed to post, (laughs) like on this day, post this graphic or whatever, but it is mostly other author friends, you know, retweeting things, sharing things. So I don't think I ever really felt that Twitter was a sales mechanism. It seemed more effective for making connections with people. Who yeah, like the same chatting. Things. Us, yeah. Twitter, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or a lot of, I don't know if you're in the same, I'm sure you are, but just the mutual follows with a lot of Victorianist like professors teaching. Oh my God, they're the best. The most fascinating, yeah, fascinating oh, yes. things. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which, you know, which is one reason I haven't left Twitter yet. All those connections. And, you know, I still, but you notice we're still calling it Twitter. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not changing what I'm I not call changing. it. I'm never going to call Facebook anything, but Facebook it's, it's not going to be meta. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, so I'll adapt as an indie author, but some things I'm not adapting to. Sometimes I'm just like, like uh, just manage your brand better. Everybody, you know, like exactly exactly. i'm not gonna convert if i don't perceive like you have a more sophisticated like you're onboarding me to a better brand i'm just gonna stick with whatever i'm familiar with exactly what works is for me or where my community is that's where i'm staying yeah i feel the same way well it's been so fantastic talking with you Um, we've ranged widely (laughs) i know i know victorian era indie publishing research yeah steampunk Films, all the things, <laughs> books to film. This was so enjoyable. I'm so excited that that we could make this happen. Thank you so Me much, too. Gail. We too. We should do call outs like like the smart author business folks that we are. Ah, yes. You should talk about your most recent release. Yes, the Lily of Ludgate Hill is book three in my Bells of London series. It's about Victorian equestrians in the 1860s who are out there fighting for their independence and uh, true love uh, in Victorian England. And Lily is about Lady Anne and Felix Hartford. Um, I've been calling it a friends to lovers to enemies to friends to lovers second chance (laughs) romance. (laughs) But it's out now from Berkeley Penguin Random House, wherever books are sold. Uh, I'm so excited for you all to read it. Uh, and my recent series is a trilogy sci-fi series, which is, I'm uh, pitching it as the aliens are coming for us and they want our K-pop. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it is about a barista on a forgotten moon who makes the very grave mistake of singing along to the entertainment unit and aliens show up and recruit him to become a god. Um, and yeah, and it's, uh, it's, I am exploring, uh, parasocial relationships, the concept of entertainment being weaponized as a soft power and all sorts of stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's so Fantastic. much fun and I'm deeply proud of it. And it has gorgeous covers. I freaking love the covers. So yes. And check us out. Uh, probably not on social media. Visit our websites, everybody. Uh, yes, um, our websites have all our, on our info. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine's gailcarriger.com and mine's mimimatthews.com it's both so simple both so simple yeah that's, that's how you get our it's how you get my attention these days is just drop me a calling card join my newsletter and reply to it and i'm i'm happy to always happy to chat i'm the same uh message me uh send me email reply to the newsletter and i may not respond super quick but I do respond. Yes, I do see it. Whereas on most social media, exactly. like, what what happened? What's going on? It's hard sometimes. <laughs> I always am wary of, of being, you know, leaving one person that I didn't harder reply and that person feeling it was on, intentional. I know, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm like, literally, it's just, I'm, eas- I'm an author. I'm easily distracted by beautiful yeah. Victorian dresses and shiny objects. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Makes perfect sense to me. All right. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Gail. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about our other episodes. 
Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment.